welcome to the Diagnostics Dialogues. Here we present discussions with experts in diagnostics and specialty medicine, designed to keep you up to date with the hottest clinical topics. Tune in to hear Dr. Damien, aka Pat Alasia, Senior Medical Director for Quest Diagnostics, interview a variety of medical luminaries to get their take on some of the complex challenges faced by hospitals and health systems. Welcome to Diagnostic Dialogues from Quest Diagnostics. This podcast gives us a place and a time where we have the opportunity to speak with leading physicians and scientists about patient care, the science that supports that care, and of course, you, the audience, who represents the community of clinical and non-clinical colleagues who support all of this. I'm Dr. Pat Alagia, the host of Diagnostic Dialogues, and today we're going to be speaking about the management of multiple sclerosis with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Racky, who leads our neurology and neuroscience work at Quest. Dr. Racky is a brilliant researcher, scholar, academician, educator, clinician, and leader who spent a large part of his life committed to understanding this condition that affects nearly a million people in the United States. Dr. Racky, thank you again for being with us today. But before we get going with our conversation, I was wondering if you'd be so kind to share your background and your pedigree with the audience so we can better understand a bit more about who you are, the work you have done, and I think most importantly, the work you're doing at Quest. Mike? Well, thank you, Pat, for that kind introduction. I started my neurology training at Emory University, and it's there already that I began working on the animal model for multiple sclerosis called EAE, or Experimental Autoimmune Encephalomyelitis. From there, I went to the National Institutes of Health, where I worked with Dale McFarland, who actually developed the mouse model of EAE. It was during the early part of my career when people used to joke that MD stood for mouse doctor. Subsequently, I took my first faculty position at Washington University in St. Louis. I was there for five years, and then I went to the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, where I was a full professor and vice chair of neurology research, as well as a member of the Center for Immunology. In 2006, I became the chairman of neurology at Ohio State, and I held that position for eight years. And I, was, I remained on in, as faculty in neurology and neuroscience until I came to Quest. And tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing at Quest right now. Well, uh, there's, a, there's a lot. I would say that Obviously, with the pandemic, there's a lot of interest in neurologic complications of COVID-19, and in particular, whether the virus actually triggers other neuroimmunologic complications. There have been numerous case reports about things such as NMDA receptor encephalitis that appear to have been triggered, as well as transverse myelitis, which, as you know, is inflammation of the spinal cord. Guillain-Barre syndrome. That's one aspect. I would say from my own personal interest, we are looking at making molecular diagnoses of the demyelinating illnesses. Right now, I would say that the way we separate the disorders like neuromyelitis optica and myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein associated demyelination is by an antibody response. But as an example, in NMO, the antibody to aquaporin-4 is really only present in about two-thirds of patients. And so 
one of the things we're looking at is whether you can actually define that in terms of a molecular footprint. I did a lot of work when I was at Ohio State with my wife, Amy, looking at a non-coding RNA called microRNA. And it turns out that microRNA is another level of regulation of the genome. And we're now looking to try to use that long-coding RNA, non-coding RNA, as a way of diagnosing different neurologic disorders. Great. And one of the things I love about neurology, and probably one of the reasons I didn't go into neurology, is that you all are the masters of the biggest words in the universe. And so um, I'm not going to ask you to repeat any of those, but let's you know keep it simple for me. I mean, and, and I got you. <laughs> not necessarily for our audience, because I know the audience is super smart, but just keep it simple for this simple OBGYN here. But let me ask you this. Your career has clearly been one of discovery and patient care. And I always find it helpful when I'm thinking about any condition to see it through the lens of how we as physicians manage individuals and how individuals manage this. And I, as you were talking about these conditions early on, or as we were talking earlier on, maybe think about one patient I, who I you know, saw early in my practice. You know, she was happy. She was fit. She was vivacious. She was you know, lovely, recently married, and also recently diagnosed with MS and was pregnant. And, you know, one of the things about neurology in the past is that it would break your heart because you see these patients with these chronic progressive conditions. And she was a triathlete, you know, pregnant. And as I watched her course over the next 10 years or so, you know, it was one of deterioration. She was always hopeful. Her smile was ever so lovely. And, and then when I last checked in with her a while back, her condition had stabilized because of the drugs and the medications that had become available probably in the mid-2000s or so. But I often wonder what her course would have been like had she seen me in 2021 versus seeing me in 1991. So can you tell me a little bit about the historical perspective of the diagnosis and management of individuals presenting with MS? Yes, sure. So uh, it's kind of interesting. The first medication that was approved for the treatment of MS was interferon beta. And that approval happened in 1994. So prior to that, so I think you mentioned this patient was diagnosed in 1991. There wasn't really much we did other than give steroids for an acute exacerbation. There were some patients, if they had bad MS, that we actually gave a course of cyclophosphamide, literally the same course that we gave the patients with breast cancer. The patients became bald. It was, as we were first learning to manage, there were a lot of complications. I should say that I probably used cyclophosphamide probably until about 10 years ago in patients who had really bad MS, but we now have learned to manage it much better. When beta interferon was approved, it was interesting. My uh, chair of neurology at the time, Dennis Choi, was on the FDA advisory committee. And he said that based on the clinical data, they would not have recommended approval of beta interferon if it weren't for the fact that it had such a dramatic effect on the imaging. So from the patient's perspective, it probably reduced exacerbations by a third, but it reduced the lesions in the brain by about 90%. And wow. people thought that was such an important, perhaps, change 
that one didn't necessarily see over a couple years in the course of a clinical trial, but that if we had that kind of effect over 10, 20 years, that you certainly probably would have seen benefits in terms of things like cognitive function. Over the years, there's now been over 20 medications approved for the treatment of multiple sclerosis. And if you look at the most recent drugs that have been approved, uh, and in particular, the B-cell depleting agents, it's not just that we see this dramatic reduction in attacks. We see also dramatic reductions in uh, progression of disability, as well as those lesions in the brain. Now, these are diseases, remember I told you, beta interferon reduced the MRI lesions by 90%. B-cell depleting agents reduced the number of lesions compared to beta interferon by another 90%, right? Now, we often use as an outcome measure something called no evidence of disease activity. Now, and there, the B-cell depleting agents over two years have about 50% of the patients have no evidence of disease activity. And those that do have disease activity, most of them just have one single new lesion on their MRI. So the dramatic difference in terms of the efficacy of the agents. The interesting thing is I've been involved with things like stem cell transplantation, which I would say is by far the most efficacious treatment for MS. When I first was involved, the issue was more morbidity and mortality of the transplant itself, right? Probably 5% of patients actually died from a stem cell transplant. If you look at it now, there's probably been, I think it's one patient in the last 500 that have been transplanted for MS that have died, but about three quarters of those patients go on to have no more disease activity. Now, the other thing that's interesting, there are obviously different types of regimens. And if you look at the most aggressive regimens, they do a great job at the inflammation, but we still sometimes will see underlying progression. And so that gets back to, I think, another important question, uh, and that's changed dramatically. When beta interferon was first approved, the recommendation of the American Academy of Neurology was that you had to have two attacks within the last two years to go on drug. And so they wanted to really make sure that you had some sort of clinical activity to get on this medication. And part of that reason, probably for the hesitancy of giving the drug, I should point out, was that... I don't know if you remember, they actually had to have a lottery. Everybody wanted to go on this drug. They didn't have enough drug. They were sort of caught by surprise uh, when they got their approval. If you look now, the patients that can have no new lesions, some of them will still have progression, even after something like stem cell transplantation. So the question is, you know, do we need to be treating earlier? And the other thing that I can tell you is that if you take any MS medication, so what, what, what had happened was we started taking each medication. We said, let's treat them when we diagnose or whenever they show up. Then we said, well, let's treat MS patients as early as we can. So the first time they say they have optic neuritis or transverse myelitis, if they had an MRI of the brain or smile fluid looked like an MS, let's treat them. And then they said, let's look and see what happens if somebody has progressive disease, what happens in terms of treatment? I would say for the first, gosh, 25, no, probably 20 years. The first 20 years when we did that with any kind of treatment that we did, if you treated at the first incidence of disease, 
that was by far the most successful. That if you treated relapsing, remitting MS, it was successful and it varied obviously amongst three agents and it's been getting better. And it's only been recently that we've actually had medications that were able to have an effect on progressive disease. So getting back to your point, the earlier we're able to treat the disease, the much better we do. So compared to 1991, you know, 30 years later, it's a message that's much more hopeful than what it was you know, back when we started practicing. Oh, I mean, back in 1991 or when I first started in my first junior faculty position, when you went to MS clinic, there were always several people in wheelchairs. And it wouldn't be unusual to actually even have somebody come in on a gurney. And I would say that in you know my most of my recent MS clinics, you can often have you go the whole day and everybody looks normal, you know? And so it's obviously a lot different. The issue is that that person that was diagnosed in 1991, if they're still alive, they very often could be in a wheelchair because they might not have had access to the medication until they've had the disease 15 to 20 years. And then already a lot of the damage has already occurred. So, you know, one of the things that I find most interesting about Quest in general, and I think that you know, our CEO, Steve Rakowski, brought this to us. It was really these clinical franchises. It's the convergence of folks like you, Dr. Fesco, myself, who practice frontline medicine and now are working very closely with this other super technical, super brilliant group of scholars and laboratorians, you know, who are pathologists and scientists. And that makes a huge difference when we're thinking about patient care and, and science. Let me ask you this. Why does it take a team to, to manage this condition? You wrote this when you, I think when you were president of the consortium of MS clinics or whatever, you talked about the interdisciplinary care of these patients. Why does it take a team? Why can't it be just one super smart neurologist like Dr. Racky? I'm going to go see him or her, you know, way out in California or wherever, and that's it. But that's not the way you talk about this. You talk about this as a multidisciplinary team managing these individuals, which is appealing to me. But why does that make a difference? Or does that make a difference? It does make a difference. And first of all, I would say that for patients that have had the disease for a while and uh, or perhaps already have significant manifestations of the disease, that we're looking at patients that may have significant urologic issues, as an example, or significant spasticity. And so then you would want neurosurgeons, say, for example, that are knowledgeable in implanting baclofen pumps to help with spasticity. And a patient who maybe still is able to walk, but falls because they have dramatic, you know, dramatically increased spasticity, uh, a baclofen pump can do dramatic amounts of helping the patient manage those symptoms. There are patients that have issues in terms of urinary incontinence, let's say. And so then we have urologists that are involved in the care of these patients. Uh, I would have said that 20 years ago, there were no urologists that really specialized in MS care. And now that's an important factor in terms of helping these people so that they can continue to go out in the workplace. I still remember when I was a fellow at the NIH, having a patient who told me about having a urinary, an episode of urinary incontinence at a cabinet meeting of all places. And so you can imagine the difference that it makes if you're able to have a patient that's able to have control of their bowel and bladder, which is often a 
one of the big issues in multiple sclerosis in patients who've had significant spinal cord disease. And then, you know, each therapy, occupational and physical therapy after an exacerbation. Again, these are all things that help get the patient back up on their feet again and back out living their normal life, hopefully. I love the idea that the multi-system approach or multidisciplinary approach allows each of us to practice our specialty, you know, focused on the individual patient. Because one of the things that I think a lot of us might lose sight of or not be aware of is the fact that it's a multi-system disease. It affects multiple organ systems. And as such, you need to have different specialists managing this. You know, you think about incontinence, I'm sure it affects bowel function too. Sure. Function. Let me ask this. I mean, you talked about this patient that you took care of it, um, who had incontinence at a cabinet meeting. How does one come to think that they might have MS? You've got a million cases in the U.S. How does one come to the diagnosis or come to talk to their doctor about it? And then the follow-up question is, how do we as physicians who are on the front lines practicing our professions, oncology, primary care, OBGYN, listen for those patients or listen to those signals that uh, the patient is telling us that they might have MS? Uh, one of the things I guess I should say, multiple sclerosis can affect anything in the central nervous system, right? When we say urinary continence or we say the problem, particularly with constipation or impotence, that's not typically that those systems are infected. It's the pathway typically in the spinal cord that would innervate those systems that's affected, right? So when I say, you know, what should people think about? It's basically anything the nervous system does, but there are obviously things that are common. One of the most common things, uh, especially early on is optic neuritis. So the patient will complain of loss of vision in an eye, often having pain with eye movement numbness from, say, the waist down or some mild weakness or some incoordination. And often the patient will have those symptoms for a couple of weeks and then they just get better, right? So if you haven't seen the patient, but the patient tells you that, that's very classic for an MS, an early MS exacerbation. And obviously, if the patient has more significant symptoms, they'll often, they'll, they'll go see a doctor because if they can't walk, they'll, they'll say, this, isn't, this definitely isn't right. I would say now with the advances made in imaging, and particularly MRI, that very often they go see the, their physician, their physician orders an MRI. And then if the MRI is suggested for MS, then the patient gets sent to a neurologist or even an MS specialist at that point. But I mean, that's the other side of it. And we talk about the MS center that the radiologists also are very experienced because I, I can tell you probably half the referrals I see, saw in MS clinic were patients that had spots on their brain, but didn't have MS, right? And so an expert neuroradiologist who's very familiar will, will look at that and say right away, no, I, this probably isn't. But there are cases of patients that, for example, have lesions in the brain because of things like diabetes, hypertension, or even being a smoker or having migraine headaches can give you some spots in your brain. But I would say most of those are, to the trained eye, are easily, I'd say fairly easily distinguishable from MS. So let me ask this. So you said that early diagnosis is better than late diagnosis. That, I think that's important. I also want to talk to the audience here because if we hear our coworkers talking about, you know, kind of a loss of vision in, in an eye or something that may sound like 
MS. Um, and then it goes away. We might want to be sensitive to that uh, individual. You could probably save their lives or help them with their path to say, listen, why don't you follow up with your internist or follow up with a neurologist? I just, you know, I just wanted to digress because again, this is a community that's caring for people. Now, Mike, when you make the diagnosis of MS, how do you follow the condition? I mean, no, uh, you know, not everybody has access to MRIs. Not everybody wants to have a spinal tap. Are there peripheral uh, blood things that you can do, samples that you can take to follow the condition? So that's a very good question. So I would say at this point, the, the still the main way that we follow patients is by MRI, right? And it's interesting here in Ohio, basically, if I try to order an MRI, if the last time you had an MRI was 360 days ago, they will deny it unless I have a good reason. If the last one's 370 days ago, it will be approved, right? That one year is like magic. And so what we're looking for typically is that if that patient hasn't complained of anything, and the MRI is unchanged, then we'll reassure the patient that we think our treatment is working well and we'll just keep what we're doing. The issue becomes then that patient feels okay and we do that MRI and there's several lesions and perhaps even active lesions present because then that leads us to think that perhaps the treatment we're using isn't as efficacious as we like. I used to always use the analogy that MS is like playing darts, right? And the bullseye is the clinically eloquent site. So if I hit the bullseye, then I have a clinical exacerbation. And so I tell the patient, if you go on this treatment, even though you haven't noticed anything, do you want MS to be able to throw 10 darts or do you want MS to be able to throw one dart? If you explain it that way, of course they want to have one dart thrown. And then I explain, I say that your brain is like a computer. And would you want that there were 10 places where the computer was damaged or just one place where the computer was damaged? And if that adds up over time, clearly a lot of times in the short term, we were able to use MRI as a way of predicting in the future what the disability would come if we can reduce that. Now, the, you brought up a very good point about blood testing. And so the hottest thing right now in multiple sclerosis, which is actually something that's exciting for most of the neurodegenerative disorders is testing neurofilament light, which is a chain that's expressed in neurons and in axons. And so, for example, in multiple sclerosis, you would see increases in neurofilament light in both the spinal fluid, and now we're able to actually demonstrate increases in the plasma, in the blood, right? So, one of the things that I think we'll be able to do is use blood testing as opposed to having to spend $4,000 on an MRI in order to see whether you have evidence of underlying disease activity. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we're obviously working on at Quest is, can we even be more sensitive in terms of some of the testing that we use in order to, de to detect this underlying inflammation, because it's really the underlying inflammation and then the subsequent damage to the nervous system itself that's what results in the accumulation of disability in these patients. So we wanna really make sure that we're doing strategy that stops the underlying damage that results in that disability.
and I think you're probably as impressed as I am about the number of brilliant scientists and clinicians we work with every day at Quest. And of course, with your national and international network and reputation, we'll get there because it's an important place to go. When I'm thinking about MS today and really listening to what you're sharing with us as the audience, I'm leaving with really three messages, and I want you to think about what kind of pearls you want to share. This is, And I think the three things I leave with, number one, it's a message of hope and care. That's what we do. And I think the hopeful part of this is the application of the science in the community. And the community is a multidisciplinary community that surrounds this patient so that we can treat the patient's multiple conditions. And then I think most importantly, what I hear from you is early diagnosis. And as clinicians, as healthcare professionals, and as colleagues, we need to listen to our patients, those individuals who've trusted their care to us and who are just our good friends for signs that can lead to the early diagnosis of MS. So that's the way I'm framing it. What do you want to leave our audience with as we wrap up here today? Right. So I think that's a very good point with regard to the early treatment. I think the other thing is that the development of medications going up exponentially in terms of their efficacy, as well as I think their safety, right? So the issue was that we were, you know, we're, we're making these kinds of trades. And one of the things, for example, I think I mentioned earlier about stem cell transplantation, it's been because of our friends in oncology who are doing this all the time for patients that obviously have lethal disorders. For example, if you had a, an allogeneic stem cell transplant, those clearly have a, a significant morbidity and mortality associated with them, but you're using that in a disorder that has 100% mortality in, say, five years, right? If you go to the MS side of things, the mortality in five years is very low. And so we then don't need to necessarily have as an aggressive strategy, but because our oncology friends keep trying to develop these aggressive strategies and make them safer, we can use that to apply to MS. And so one of the things that I may have mentioned before is that back in uh, the 80s, when we were using cyclophosphamide at the dosing that was used in a cancer patient, we subsequently used much lower dosing, which was much better tolerated by the patients and had at least some effect on the, the disease. The other side of, the, of this is that with a lot of the chemotherapies, they have toxicity, not just to immune cells, but to all cells. And so one of the things that's been interesting as we have this era of monoclonal antibodies, we now have treatments that really are very specific for what we're trying to target in the immune system to try to interrupt some step in MS pathogenesis. And that to me has been a huge step in terms of trying to reduce the associated side effects and morbidity that was associated with many of the really aggressive MS treatments. Patients are often hesitant to go on treatment. So I can tell you, it's not entirely uncommon wait six months and then do another MRI and just say, you know, you think you're doing fine, but look at the difference in your brain. I always say that I can't say things that I haven't written in the past, right? And one of the things, for example, there was a, gosh, this is when I was at UT Southwestern, so it was probably 15 years ago. 
that there were a bunch of us neurologists that basically advocated and said all MS patients for, should be treated. And then there was a group of neurologists that said that all MS patients shouldn't be treated, right? Is that sure, there's going to probably be, you know, five to 10% of patients who have benign MS. But I'm not smart enough to know who, who that is right off the bat. My argument is that we need to treat everybody because by the time we figure out who has bad MS, if you're going to just let them stay off treatment for a while, now you're behind the eight ball, you know, and the patient's behind the eight ball. And my feeling is that still in neurology, prevention is way better than treatment. It would be great if we end up basically dividing up the, the demyelinating disorders by a molecular method as opposed to the antibodies. When you start talking about things like gene therapy and all the things that we're able to do, if we're able to manipulate the genome a little bit, that's going to be way better than the kinds of treatments we're doing now. And that's, to, to get there, you have to basically identify things molecularly that are off, for lack of yeah. a better term. I won't say broken because they're not broken. But I have to tell you, because I'm on all these regulatory calls, treatments themselves, it's just the only time I ever saw a spontaneous standing ovation was when Jerry Mendel gave the talk about gene therapy for like infantile spinal muscular atrophy. So these are kids that like die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one and a half. And he's showing a little boy walking who had the gene therapy walking to kindergarten class and everybody just starts clapping, you know? And to me, that's why we're in this business, right? Is to be able to take people who were in despair and all of a sudden not only give them hope, but give them more than hope, give them a cure, right? But I think that, you know, you make an interesting point. That's why we're in this business because we want to not only give them hope, but we want to give them a cure. Yeah, and I believe that that's what you are doing. You and your team are doing in neurology at Quest Diagnostics. Beyond hope, it's a cure, it's an intervention. You're making a difference in their lives going forward. And instead of crying because you're so sad, you're now crying because you're so happy. You're seeing people you know, live lives uh, to their fullest. And you're a big part of that. We typically don't talk about, certainly like if we're doing it in front of a, a patient group, is the costs of these treatments, right? So, you know, that somehow has to come into balance. And, and I don't know, you know, uh, how we fix that issue. Because on the one hand, we're so happy that in the United States, we get access to these medications earlier, but we pay more for these medications than any other country. I sometimes sit there and wonder, like, I've seen people that are like, you know, 75 years old who were a diabetic, got a kidney transplant, and a month later have a devastating stroke and die. And you would say, and you'd say, you know, that was terrible. And then you'd also say, in the UK, they would never have done that. People sort of say, oh, that's terrible what the UK does. But on the other hand, you know, they somehow like made that decision, right? And I think that we have to realize that when we do things like give the best medications and the best treatments, we aren't giving them to everybody. And so there is a portion of our population that's not receiving that kind of care. We have to sort of come to grips 
I can tell you, for example, that we used to always talk about MS, that if you look at the patients that are coming up from Appalachia, their MS seems to be much worse. And is it, it's not just because they're a smoker, it's also just that they're, they're not eating well, they have comorbidities that, uh, that make their disease worse. We have to work on that too. I think that we can do it all. You know, I think it's our responsibility as physician leaders to, to roar like a lion and to push really hard on this. And the, where I'm coming from is that we talk about who the audience is. And is it the payer? Is it the employer? The audience is the patient and the people who are responsible for the care. And that's us. And right. we, need that, we need to focus this discussion on the care and not necessarily the science and not the technology and not all the costs and everything, but we have the tools, we have the need, we have the patient. So who better than groups like us? to push that agenda, to say, right. okay, we can do this. And as soon as we believe we can do this at a cost that's affordable or a way that's affordable and it's manageable, we win. And I think that's where, you know, I mean, I enjoy talking to you so much. And it's the lion within us that gets activated or the lioness that gets activated because I believe that strongly that that's where we make a difference, that we lead, we create the future, we show them what it looks like and that's how it makes a difference. And never back down. What? <laughs> I feel like as a scientist that, you know, I want to show people data. So, for example, the, uh, the BMS trial, which I was involved in the, uh, I guess, the planning of it. One of the things that we're doing is also looking at a cost analysis. Because people will say, what happens if you do a transplant for $200,000? That seems like ridiculous. I said, yeah. But if you look, if you pay $200,000 as opposed to paying $80,000 a year for five years, then if I transplant you and then there's no more treatment after that, I just save the system $200,000. And I don't think that necessarily people look that way. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the infrastructure discussion, right? You know, we cannot pay. If we don't pay now, we're going to have to pay later. I, I think that's the same with the way we look at medicine, that if we make steps to intervene earlier, then we save a lot of the expense later. But see, Mike, and, you and I were trained to manage disease in an advanced stage. I mean, that now we're thinking differently. We can pick these up earlier and, and manage them differently. And it may seem like it costs more, but what I need is your big brain wrapped around these ideas with the vocabulary and the story to drive this forward. Because that's what we are doing now. I mean, we have the opportunity to really change the world here. And it's such a privilege to be able to work with this group and have this venue where we can talk about not only the great work we're doing at Quest, but the great work that we as physicians have the opportunity to participate in. And it's not just MS. It's everything. And that's all right. Exactly. I mean, what a gift. I would say that's the most exciting part about being able to see all these other areas of neurology where there's just incredible progress being made in treating a number of disorders that we used to from Alzheimer's disease to muscular dystrophy, you know? So, and I'd like to say that we, as you know, physicians and scientists and healthcare executives, 
are living in one of the most unique times, if not the most unique time in medicine, where you're seeing the convergence of molecular diagnostics, genetics, you know, pharmacogenomics, distributed healthcare models, hospitals, everything's being turned upside down. And all the science that we studied 20, 30, 40 years ago or read about is now coming together so that we can focus on the individual patient and we can really make those lives better. We've seen it in sickle cell disease. Oh, sure. You're seeing it in oncology. You're now seeing it in neurology. You know, we're seeing it in prenatal care. Would you do it again? Boy, I'll tell you, I wish I could start now. I'd do it all over because everybody's so much smarter and now we get to really change lives. I mean, are you feeling kind of the same thing? I would say, sure. I, when I was a resident, what we were able to really treat was what I would say minimal in some sense, right? That's not a, a entirely true, but clearly in a number of areas in neurology, you know, the mindset also of the people that goes into neurology is so much different. I think about when I was a resident, for example, Doug Wallace was at Emory and he was the one of the first people to identify that the DNA that was in the mitochondria wasn't just yeah. sort of empty baggage, but then in fact, it really mattered in terms of the cellular energy. And that if you had mutations in the mitochondrial DNA, you had disease, right? Right. And so this is another area where before these were just sort of these weird orphan diseases where now again they're treating them there to me a lot of the and even the mechanisms of how we're doing gene therapy one study it's giving a you know an adenovirus that goes into a muscle and gives the expression but in another it's like doing a transplant where the transplanted cells have the normal dna and sort of deliver enough of whatever it is that's missing so that the patient doesn't develop the signs of the disease. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to me all the different ways that we have figured out how to combat human disease. And I mean, obviously, from my perspective in MS, for one of the diseases that was the most frustrating for physicians to now be, I think, one of the most treatable diseases, that's very exciting. Again, thank you for your leadership. And I want to taunt my audience friends here a little bit. Just to note that I get to share conversations like this every day with people like Dr. Racky and you know our other scientists. This is an incredible group, an incredible group of scientists, laboratorians, physicians who are committed to patient care. And I think that what you all have a chance to see and experience is really the energy and commitment that we share to provide better care for patients' lives everywhere. So again, Mike, thank you for your time. Absolutely brilliant discussion. And I uh, look forward to talking to this audience again in the near future. Thanks, Pat. That's it for this episode of the Diagnostic Dialogues. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please follow us on your favorite podcast apps and follow us on LinkedIn for more cutting edge content and to engage with the physician guests from the program. Be sure to visit our site, questdialogues.com. Until next time.